For the word this morning, we have Matthew 21, 1 through 11. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put, them, and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Before we take a look at this humble, majestic king, let's bow our heads before him and ask him to reveal himself to us. Oh Lord, our God, we want to see you. We want to know you. We want to be obedient to you. We want to have life in you. And yet like the blind men at Jericho, before Jesus made his triumphal entry, we cannot see him. So we cry out to you, have mercy on us. Open our eyes that we can see our king and that we can receive his salvation. If there are any in here this morning who do not yet know Christ, who have not surrendered to him as the king of kings and lord of lords, God, would you grant them repentance and faith this morning and help us walk all in sanctification toward obedience to him, into his likeness, that we may be holy as you in heaven are holy. Use this time together under your word for that purpose, for the glory of the risen King Jesus. Amen. Everyone carries with them some kind of burden. I know that many of you come in on a Sunday morning and feel like everybody else in here has it all together, and you're the only one whose life is a mess. You look around the room and think, wow, they're such a great family. Oh, I could never be like them. Oh, I hope they don't find out about me. But we've all got baggage. Many are dealing with significant health issues. Some have great financial struggles. There's some of you who are dealing with great relational drama in your life or are trying to put behind you a life of addiction of some kind. Or maybe you just feel like your kids aren't maturing as fast as you would like them to and every day feels like chaos. For many others, it just goes even deeper. You wrestle with your own identity, your purpose, your value. You feel like the whole world is against you. Or maybe your own mind or body are at war against you. 
You can't get ahead in anything. Everything you touch seems to fall apart. There's a constant negative news cycle that just paints this foreboding picture of hopelessness all over the place. So whatever you you struggle with today, whatever burdens you carry in here, I want you to think about what would rescue look like for you. If you were to get to sit down with Jesus and ask him to take care of your problem, to solve whatever issues you have, what would you ask him for? Or if you were to go to bed tonight and by a miracle of Jesus, while you were sleeping, he fixed your problem and you woke up in the morning, what would that look like? What would you be doing that next day? How you answer the quest- those questions reveals what you believe about who Jesus is and what he has come to do for you. Today is Palm Sunday, where we focus particularly on Jesus' arrival into Jerusalem for his last week of ministry. Palm Sunday is the day of Christ's so-called triumphal entry. This clear announcement of who he is, his claim to the throne over Israel. Come to solve everybody's problems and remove their burdens. So it's into this huge, diverse mix of problems and struggles that people have that he enters as their savior. He arrives in Jerusalem with many expectations of rescue heaped upon him. Everyone desiring salvation, having an idea of what that salvation would look like for them, how the Messiah has come to bring their liberation. But despite all of those expectations, the way that Jesus arrives into town is calling the people to behold your king is coming with Yahweh's salvation. That word behold means look, see. He's coming, but maybe not in the way you were expecting, and to do the things that you were hoping he would do for you. But here he is. Behold, your king is coming with Yahweh's salvation. We're going to take a look at this triumphal entry in Matthew 21 in two parts. Let's focus first on verses 1 through 5 and your king's humble arrival. We're first just trying to train our hearts to understand who Jesus is. If we're going to ask him for help for our struggles, we got to understand what he's capable of. Is he the right person to go to? And then in verses 6 to 11, we will behold your king's greater salvation. So not only are we understanding who he is, but really what he's come to do. It does you no good to say you trust in Jesus if the only thing you're trusting him for is to rescue you from the consequences of yesterday's bad burrito. That's not the saving faith we're looking for. Jesus came with a salvation that is going to cover all of creation, your entire life. It's a bigger issue and a greater salvation that we are called to understand as we behold your king who's coming with Yahweh's salvation. So let's focus First, on those first five five verses, we're going to take a look in verses one through five at your king's humble arrival. Read along again with me. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage 
to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. On this very important day, Jesus enters into Jerusalem for the last time in this first earthly ministry. He's made his 100-mile journey down from Galilee through the Jordan Valley, turning at Jericho to go up the mountain into the holy capital city. And right before he crests the final mountaintop to come down the Mount of Olives and enter into the eastern gate of the city, he stops in a small village to make the final preparations for his big reveal of his, his royal identity. Jesus has been all over the country of Israel, including a few stops in Jerusalem, and to teach about who he is, that he is the son of God. He has power and authority. He's slowly been revealing his identity and causing quite a stir everywhere he goes. And the more clear he's been about who he is, the more trouble it stirs up. The more the leadership wants to kill him. He's had to be quite careful to what he says to avoid being killed too early. He had more work to do in order to fulfill all the prophecy about his coming. But now he is ready to fulfill the final stages and declare his identity with perfect clarity, no subtlety. And now it will lead to his death. But it's all part of the Father's plan. This is the work he has come to do. So he's designed for this big announcement to come into town and declare that he is the Messiah, the King of Israel, the anointed one who's come to rescue his people, forgive their sins, defeat their enemies, and shower them with Yahweh's blessings. It's everything everyone has longed for. Those hearts that are desperate for rescue. But it's not at all what they were expecting. They don't understand God's holiness and his righteousness and his glory and how their own sin has blinded them to that and made them enemies of it. If he were to come in his full glory, it would actually destroy everybody there. So Jesus is going to come in humility in order to bring his holiness near to them without killing them, but in order to save them. So instead of a grand military parade like any big ruler, some kings would perform upon their arrival, Jesus makes different arrangements. He gives his disciples some different instructions on how to put together this parade celebrating his rule. No tanks, no nuclear warheads down the street. No show of conquered slaves or flashy armored soldiers. He doesn't even come riding in on a mighty war horse. Jesus tells his disciples to retrieve for him a donkey. He's going to ride into town on a donkey. 
What a ridiculous royal procession this is going to be. Not a single person is going to believe that Jesus has royal authority by riding in on a donkey. Donkeys are work animals. They're not royal military creatures. The only people who ride on donkeys are children or weak, sick, broken people. These are work animals, not for riding. Is, what is he saying in all of this? Additionally, he's going to ride in on an unbroken colt, the young offspring of the female mother, the adult donkey that's with him. It's such a, this colt is such a useless animal. It needs its mother to come alongside of it, to keep it in line. Otherwise, it would have no discipline and get out of control. It's a completely worthless work animal at this point. And it's not even Jesus' own donkey. He's got to borrow it from somebody else. He is so poor that he can't ride into, not only can he not ride into town on a war horse, he has to ride into town on a donkey, a borrowed donkey. He has to borrow this animal from someone else who's just a little less poor than he is. So what's this all about? What is Jesus saying about himself in this? Well, as we'll see in a moment, he's not denying his divine authority at all, but he's explaining how his divine royal power has come near in a way to save us. For our sakes, he has emptied himself. He's come to the least of us, the poor, the needy, the broken, the sorrowful, the weak. He came for all of us who feel like everybody else has it together, but my life is falling apart. He came to come and get beneath our weakness, to lift us up out of it. If he came in his full glory, it would destroy us, not save us. If your life is actually going quite splendidly, if you have much power or wealth or influence, Jesus' humble arrival won't make any sense. Why would you follow a king who's less glorious than you are? who has less power, less wealth, less influence than you do. But don't let his appearance fool you. This is the Lord of glory riding into town. And you can see hints of that in verse 3, in the potential objection to his instruction. Jesus knows that they're wondering, you want us to just walk up to this stranger and say, we need your animals, his only work animals. We're going to take these animals from this poor guy so that we can use them. This doesn't make sense. So he responds to their doubt. You shall say the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. It kind of sounds like he's given them the power of some Jedi mind trick where he can say, you will give us these animals. But what Jesus is really meaning to clarify here is that he has sovereign control over all of these circumstances. This entire situation is in control by his right hand. He is the king of the universe, the Lord of every man's heart. Whether he previously arranged something behind the scenes or he just knows that the father will send the spirit to work in this man's heart to send the animals. The whole point is that God is in control of every detail. This will be vital for them to remember in a few days when Jesus is facing a corrupt trial and he's hanging on a cross. Even then, God 
is in control of every detail to accomplish his salvation. In case anyone reading this continues to doubt that it's going according to God's plan, Matthew cites Zechariah 9.9. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Zechariah, in his day, was surrounded also by people who were struggling, had many burdens and problems. But God offered them hope, confidence, that one day a Messiah was going to come and relieve them of all of their problems. He was coming soon. And what's interesting about this promise is that it comes in the context of peace. He's go- this Messiah is going to come and solve these problems without even drawing a sword. Somehow he's going to fix everything by coming in humility, riding on a donkey. It's not, this just doesn't make any sense. Zechariah has to say, behold, look, look carefully, pay attention, understand this very important detail. You expected him to come on a mighty, mighty, mounted on a white horse, on a stallion, a beast of battle. But he's coming on a picture of weakness and poverty and dirty work. Showing you that your problems are much more than you realize. Jesus is getting beneath your problems of addiction and poverty and relational strife and illness. He's getting to the heart of it, at your pride, your idolatry, idolatry, your doubt, your fear, all of your sin. The only way to kill those things is for him to take it upon himself. And God is in complete control of the entire thing through Christ's weakness. To put all of those weaknesses upon Christ, that they would be buried with him in a grave. So what is your king's humble arrival say about his identity. He's still claiming to be the king sent by God, the promised one from the beginning of time when he told Eve that one of her sons would crush the head of the serpent. He is that one. He's been accomplishing his decrees all throughout history behind the scenes. He is the Lord. He is Yahweh, the creator and sustainer of the world. But his authority will be exercised differently than we expect. Even though the prophets explained it, our own suffering often blinds us to the reality of his full identity as, yes, the glorious king, but also the humble, suffering servant. This is why just before this story, at the end of chapter 20, Jesus heals these two blind men in Jericho. He wanted to show them that their physical blindness wasn't their primary problem. He wanted to open their eyes physically and spiritually to show them who Christ was, that he is their king come to bring a greater salvation. So now that we know who he is, let's look at what he has come to do. Behold, your king's greater salvation. Look back in verses 6 to 11. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put, them on their, put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. 
Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he entered into Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. So despite the absurdity of Jesus' command to the disciples, they still went out and did what he told them to do and brought the donkey and the colt back. It happened just as he said it would. More proof that he is the king of kings. He's the king of the universe. The disciples obeyed. And then the farmer obeyed. And then the donkeys obeyed. Everything's unfolding just as he decreed. The disciples recognize his royal authority from this, and they remove their cloaks from their back. They lay some on the donkey, on this unsaddled donkey, so that he could sit on there. And others threw their cloaks onto the ground in front of him, a sign of submission to his authority. Still others from the crowd went and cut branches off and wave them at him and throw them on the ground in front of him, a sign of victory over their oppressors. All of these acts showing that they still don't quite understand what he came to do. A couple of hundred years prior to this, there was a successful revolution against the Romans. Some Jewish leaders led the Jews to revolt against Rome and and get them out of Jerusalem for a while, and they celebrated by waving palm branches and singing psalms together. So they're expecting a victory. Or this picture of throwing cloaks on the ground we see in 2 Kings 9.13 when another son of David, King Jehu, was anointed to be king. And they threw their cloaks down in front of him and he comes riding in on a mighty horse carrying a sword and he goes out into the land then and starts confronting all of the corruption throughout the land. But that's not what Jesus came to do yet. There's kind of a mix of imagery going on here. The people think he's coming for that battle. And they start chanting Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26 in particular. They're, they're so excited that the rescuer has come. In their exuberance, they cry out, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of Yahweh! Hosanna in the highest! Hosanna means save us! All of their their brokenness, all of their weakness just pouring out. Here he is, save us. They've been under Roman, Greek, Persian, Babylonian oppression for centuries. They've been hungry, poor, blind, and vulnerable their entire lives. Their families have been split apart. Now the Messiah has come to make it all right. How can you not get excited? How can you not throw your hands up and sing when your Savior has come? God does plan to do away with all of their problems, but again, they missed what he's primarily come to do in this moment. Psalm 118 describes the kinds of things God promised to rescue his people from. Distress, hatred, corruption, war. These people are definitely experiencing those things at the hands of the Romans, but they don't realize that they are also committing those things against God and his kingdom. 
As much as the Romans were at war with them, they were at war with God. God needed to solve the problem of their own rebellion before he could solve the other problems in their lives. The Romans aren't the only offenders. Israel was too. All of us are offenders, are rebels against God. So to take care of the our individual personal problems, God first has to deal with our rebellion. And he alone is the one able to accomplish that victory. Psalm 118 further says that he will come to be near his people, among his people, through the Messiah, and cut off all of his enemies. His hand alone will win the victory. But as Zechariah reminded us, it will be done through humility. Or as Isaiah 53 describes, laying down his own life unto death. Jesus has come to die to cut off the enemy of our sin. But he doesn't just come to save us from our rebellion. He came to save us for faithful kingdom citizenship. He doesn't just die and bury our sins. He rises from the dead to pour out his spirit in order that we may live for him. Psalm 118 describes Yahweh's salvation as bringing life, righteousness, worship, praise, thankfulness joyful and glad fellowship with God. But all of these things will only come through submission, surrender to Jesus, the King who is coming with Yahweh's salvation. Becoming a Christian doesn't mean simply give your heart to Jesus or learn some really important theology, recite a prayer, and join a church. Those are all important parts of it, but all of those things are really just different ways of saying surrender to King Jesus. Surrender means give up your fight against him. Give up your fight of getting to define him and getting to define yourself, your own reality. Surrender means waving the white flag, admitting you are powerless against him, recognizing that he has every right and all power to destroy you. You surrender to him, begging him to be merciful. And he will be merciful. In the coming days, he will accomplish a way to pour out his mercy. This is what Jesus' arrival into Jerusalem is saying. Surrender to Jesus, your king. You think he looks pathetic riding on a donkey? Your sin makes you more pathetic than that. In his humility, he still has far more power and authority than we do. Verse 10 shows that the people understand what he's saying. It says the whole city was stirred up. They knew what he was claiming. They didn't like it. They thought they deserved far better than a donkey-riding king. They want glory. Bring us some glory. We want a glorious king. They ask, who is this? Who is this king? What is this guy, who does this guy think he is making such a mockery of us? God promised us a glorious king that we would be returned to glory. But again, their questions show their blindness and their ignorance of Scripture. If they knew their Bibles, they would realize that their question is asking the question of Psalm 24. Who is this king? 
That psalm anticipates the Messiah's arrival into Jerusalem when they sing, Lift up your head, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, Yahweh, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? Yahweh of hosts, he is the King of glory. The people of Jerusalem want glory, and they just laugh at his claims on a donkey. You call this glory? What kind of army does this guy think he's going to defeat? How can this redneck gathering of Galileans overcome the Romans? How is this poor man going to be the king of us all? Their eyes deceive them. The prophet had to say, behold, but like the blind man, men in Jericho, unless Jesus opens their eyes, they can't see he is the king of glory. One day they will. By then it'll be too late. Revelation 19 describes the next time Jesus returns. It won't be humble riding on a donkey, coming to lay down his life to shed his blood. It will be on a white horse with a flaming sword, ready to judge and make war. With his heavenly armies surrounding him, he will strike down all who refuse to surrender. He will not spill another drop of his own blood. He will rule with a rod of iron, treading the winepress of the fury of the wrath of the God Almighty. This, he says, is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Don't miss your opportunity to surrender to him in his humility. Don't be deceived thinking that he's not really that impressive. 2,000 years ago, he revealed himself as the king, as a humble king riding on a donkey. Today, he's chosen to reveal himself as a reigning king through his church. The people who gather to saturate their lives with his word. Sure, we don't look too impressive. Some might say we're like a bunch of donkeys. We're a bunch of weak, troubled, broken people. But this is how Jesus has chosen to display his reign over all things to the world. Every time the church gathers for worship, we proclaim Jesus is the king. Every time a Christian stands firm on truth, refuses to go along with the culture and all of their corrupt ways and their destructive ideas, you proclaim that Jesus is the king. He's the absolute king of all nations. He's the king over presidents. He's the king over governors. He's the king over the mayor and city council. He's the Lord over every business. He's the Lord over the clinic. He is the Lord over every school. Not only does he want you to see his dominion over all those things, but he wants you to know his dominion over your home, his dominion over your leisure, his dominion over your work. He is the head of your body, the superior of your heart, the monarch of your ambitions. He's the sovereign over your illness, the supreme over your addictions. He is authoritative over your education. He is absolute over all your decisions. He is in control of your chaos. He has power over your problems. He is emperor over your emotions. Jesus 
is the king. And that truth should stir your heart as it did Jerusalem. Whether the world recognizes it or not, he is Lord of all. And we should be so bold to represent his kingdom that it stirs up an entire city. It should stir your heart and it should stir up the city. Some it will stir up to hate him and mock us. Others it will stir to surrender to him and join us. If you surrender to him, then he promises mercy. The judgment that you deserve for your rebellion, he took upon himself on the cross, bearing God's wrath against you, cutting off his sinful enemy right out of your heart and giving you a new heart by his resurrection. You might not think that little lies or complaining are worth eternal wrath, but if Jesus is the king, we need to remember it's not the size of the offense that demands eternal justice, but the greatness of the one sinned against, the eternal God himself. The death of Christ, the eternal son of God, is alone sufficient to remove your rebellion and satisfy your wrath. His resurrection gives you the power then today to live as a faithful citizen of his eternal kingdom. Surrender to Jesus isn't the end of your life, as some may fear, but truly the beginning of life, the life that you were created for. Jesus doesn't just come to save you from what ails you and oppresses you, from the consequences of your sins. He came to save you for himself that you may live for heaven now as a servant of the king to enable you to build families on mission, to herald his truth and execute his decrees, to arrange your homes to reflect his created order, to work in the marketplace representing the dominion of Christ in all of the life-enriching work you do, to gather every Sunday until Jesus returns to remind our neighbors that nothing else is more essential. Nothing else is more important than remembering that Jesus is the king. Stay faithful, brothers and sisters. Behold, your king is coming again with Yahweh's salvation. If you have surrendered to him, you are forgiven your sins, made clean by his blood, filled with his spirit, so that you can live for him today. But he also promises one day a resurrected life where all of your burdens that you bring in here every week will finally be taken away. And all things will be made new. We will finally live forever at peace with Christ under his perfect, righteous, and glorious reign. Let's bow our heads now in submission to that king. God, we want to recognize now that in our flesh we have been rebels. Rebels to your rule over creation. Rebels to your reign over our lives. Rebels to your authority to define who we are and what we should be doing. And we surrender to King Jesus. 
We wave the white flag and say, will you be merciful on us? And we are grateful that you lift our chins to look you in the face and say, well done, my son. Because you don't see us, you see Christ covering us, washing us with his blood, filling us with his righteousness. God, we, like, like the disciples laid their cloaks down on the ground, we lay our lives down on the ground that you may trample on them, that they, our old lives may be killed. And God, we trample on them as well. We no longer want to live that way. Would you give us more of your spirit that we may live faithfully, boldly, truthfully, that our entire lives from the moment we wake one day and all the work we do and all the relationships we have, all of it would proclaim that Jesus is king. We surrender again to him by the power of his name, through his shed blood, and for his glory. Amen.